Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Orlando actor David McElroy has been performing his one-man version of A Christmas Carol for more than a quarter century. I love all the characters because the emotion has carried almost to real life with me uh, over the 25 years. I, I was kind of acting things before, even though I was doing the emotions, but I now feel emotionally involved with each one of them. We'll discuss shipments of Florida phosphate to the Soviet Union. By the 1970s, phosphate mining was the third largest industry in Florida, behind tourism and agriculture. And we'll talk about the traditional Surfing Santas event. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Molly was dead to begin with. There's no question about that. The register of his burial was signed by the undertaker, the clergyman, the clerk, and his chief mourner, <coughs> Scrooge, signed it. There's an end to it. Haven't got all day to stand around mourning my deceased partner. He's dead as a doornail, and that's that. My only concern is getting back to the counting house before these Christmas revelers start their din. Bah! Humbug! Charles Jacob Dickens Marley? first published A Christmas Carol in 1843 during a period when many modern Christmas traditions were established, such as singing Christmas carols, sending Christmas cards, and decorating Christmas trees. Dickens' A Christmas Carol was instantly very popular. From 1849 to 1870, Dickens himself did public readings of A Christmas Carol, taking on the persona of each character. Since 1997, Orlando actor David McElroy has been staging his own one-man version of A Christmas Carol. I heard that Patrick Stewart was doing a one-man production of it, and I tried to find it, you know, of course at the time the computer system was a little little off, so I found a recording of it, and I listened, and it was him basically reading the book, kind of like Charles Dickens did, and then he would interpret the characters as he read. And uh, I talked to Marilyn, my wife, about it, and I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to try to take a crack at that. And she said, what do you want to do, read the book? And I said, no. said I would adapt it and eventually play all the roles. And we worked on it, and I worked on it, and then I had a reading of it, I think, in October in October of 97. And we decided to mount it, and we did it as a full, kind of a full production with, uh, we had masks for the ghost, we had a bed, a fireplace, all these different things. And then over the years, we've just simplified it because we've gone so many different places. So that's how it got started originally. David McElroy's daughter, Chloe McElroy, has taken over from her mother, Marilyn, as director of the one-man A Christmas Carol and has been familiar with the production from the beginning. The first time I actually saw the projection was the first show. And my sister and I, with my Girl Scout troop, sang uh, Christmas carols before the show. So I actually remember that one specifically because I was actually a part of it. And I was actually six years old at the time. So I'm, I'm in my 30s now. So it's been a, a very interesting process. 
going from being a child and, you know, watching a full production of it to actually directing it now. (laughs) There have been dozens of interpretations of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, from an animated version with Mr. Magoo, many films, and even an opera. Some presentations have significant differences from Dickens' original story. David McElroy stays close to the original source material. It's almost correct with the novel. The The thing I did leave out is he is flown by the Ghost of Christmas Present to a mine underneath the earth where even the miners are celebrating Christmas because they, and they're far away from their homes. And it, it's a rather long passage in the book. And I thought, well, that would be diff- a little more difficult, even though I fly with all the other ones. But uh, And the ending in the original Christmas Carol is that he does Bob Cratchit comes in late and he does kind of surprise him and, you know, berate him. And then, and then of course, you know, says, I'm raising your salary. In our production, we go the night before and do it. And then say the next day when you come in, we'll celebrate your, your newfound wealth and prosperity and happiness with Tiny Tim. So, <laughs> Over the course of his one man, A Christmas Carol, David McElroy portrays 37 characters without relying heavily on costume pieces or props. It's vocal and physical. Um, I come in with a um, top hat and coat, and then I switch into Scrooge during that time. And then after that, I take it off and narrate it. And I just have a white shirt and black pants. I think for one of the children, I put on a hat. And that's the only other time I do any costuming. (laughs) My favorite character has always been Mrs. Cratchit. I think that she is really a feisty and fiery woman. And the way that, you know, my dad, David, portrays it, I'm always looking for varieties of expressing the character. You know, I don't want her to just be angry. I don't want her to just be sad because she's my favorite character. I think I'd probably pay a little more attention to her than I do the other characters. But I definitely uh, really love her because in a time where she's basically uh, a housewife, she's taking care of all of the all of the Cratchit children while Bob goes to work. And um, I didn't want her to seem like a typical housewife. And she really doesn't, you know, um, in the interpretation that David does of her. I think that she's just kind of almost an inspirational character for me. And I I really love her. So she's my favorite. (laughs) Of course, I love Scrooge. But my second and third favorite is Bob and, and Mrs. Cratchit. Because they go through such a transformation as does Scrooge. They are almost tied to his uh, coattails. You know, it's like when he's working for him 12 hours a day, making 15 shillings a week. And then he goes from that to eventually prosperity and and health for his for Tiny Tim, who is uh, dying. I just think that they're inspirational. And of course, I love all the characters because the emotion has carried almost to real life with me over the 25 years. I, I was kind of acting things before, even though I was doing the emotions, but I now feel emotionally involved with each one of them. Although David McElroy's A Christmas Carol is a one-man show with daughter Chloe directing, it remains a family affair. Chloe, she's always said, well, you know, I'd like to do this, call it the Christmas Carol with a woman rather than a man. And I said, well, yeah, you can have it when you take the cold, dead script from my hand. But there's a couple of times I thought, hmm, maybe I've done it long enough. But right now I feel great. And uh, it's like going to a gym, really. It's like, Every year I have to, uh, when we rehearse it, I have to rehearse just half of it first and then the Mm -hmm. second half. And then we keep going and going. And then finally, by the time, you know, we're up and going, 
I mean, I'm energized. And by the end, I'm tired, but it's tired energy. <laughs> it's definitely something I um, told him that I would love to possibly take over from him whenever he's ready to let it go. And <laughs> and like he said, I don't know if he'll ever be ready to let it go. Like, I, I didn't think that we would get this far with it. And look at that we have. So I did tell him I would eventually like to try to do it before he croaks. So it'd be nice to... <laughs> David McElroy's one-man version of A Christmas Carol has been performed in multiple venues from private homes for 2,500 people at the Villages and at Seminole State College, to name a few. The ghost of Christmas present was radiant and bright. His massive beard with ringlets of curls framed his jolly face, and his head was hung with holly and icicles that clinked together in glorious harmonies. You have never seen the like of me before. Uh, uh, never. Oh, you puny little man. Have you no more walked with my brothers in these later years? Uh, I can't say that I have. Have you many brothers, Beard? More than 1,800. Oh, that is a tremendous family to provide for. This food smells delicious. May I have some? Of course. And drink some of my wine. You might like it. It's called the milk of human kindness. I don't know about that. Ooh, it's delicious. Drink some more. You need it. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, Florida is not usually viewed as a mining state, but phosphate mining has played an important role in the state's economic history. By 1974, Florida had been mining phosphate to produce fertilizer for almost a century, since 1883. As American agriculture shifted from small family farms to commercial production, in the post-World War II era, philanthropic foundations, the USDA, and land-grant universities initiated research programs to support a so-called green revolution that would feed the world through a system that relied on improved seeds, the use of chemical fertilizers, irrigation, and mechanization of farming processes. In 1970, agricultural scientist Norman Borlaug, the father of the Green Revolution, received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work that was credited with saving over a billion people from starvation. As Brad Massey argues in his 2016 article, The Hammer, the Sickle, and the Phosphate Rock, that appeared in the Florida Historical Quarterly, Florida's role in providing phosphate-based fertilizers played an important part in the Green Revolution, 
but generated state and national controversy in 1974 when an agreement between Arm & Hammer's company Occidental Petroleum and the Soviet Union placed the Florida phosphate mines at the center of the Cold War. With so many aspects of the Cold War in play, how did Florida's phosphate mining move to center stage? Massey approaches the controversy from several perspectives. First, he outlines the economic, political, and environmental history of phosphate mining in Florida and describes the events that produced the controversial deal between Occidental and the Soviet Union. Second, he examines the objections to the deal, presented most notably by Florida Secretary of State Richard Stone, that, quote, the deal threatened the Florida environment, advanced Soviet industrial technology, was backed by American taxpayers, and provided an essential finite agricultural commodity and a potential weapon to the Soviets, end quote. Finally, he explores the Carter administration's 1979 decision to halt Florida phosphate shipments in response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the Reagan decision to rescind the Carter embargo. Massey builds his article on earlier histories of the Florida phosphate industry, including those of Scott Hamilton Dewey, Frederick Blakey, Louis D. Harris, H.T. Grace, and William W. Orr, he notes that while the earlier histories explore the origins of the phosphate industry and the environmental problems it generated, none examined the relationship of the industry to the Cold War. Connie, what was the economic impact on Florida and how did Floridians view the industry? By the time Occidental negotiated its deal with the USSR, Florida's mining industry produced one-third of the world's phosphate. By the 1970s, phosphate mining was the third largest industry in Florida, behind tourism and agriculture. The phosphate industry employed more than 61,000 workers and shipped 35 million tons of phosphate to locations around the world. Two companies dominated the mining and processing, International Mineral and Chemical Company and Brewster Phosphate Company. Operations were primarily located in Polk County, and phosphate was shipped out of Tampa. The narrow geographic scope of the operations meant that people living in those two counties experienced the economic benefits and the environmental downside more than other parts of the state. Of special concern to many were the increased air and water pollution that accompanied the expansion of the industry between 1950 and 1970. As Massey documents, quote, Tampa area politicians complained about the phosphate dust that wafted over transporting trains, and Tampa motorists complained that the trains crawl through the city 12 times a day, causing major traffic jams. A 1965 Newsweek magazine story chronicled the clouds of phosphate dust that drifted across Tampa Bay and bathed neighboring homes in clouds of white powder, end quote. One Hillsborough County commissioner accused the industry of creating dam breaks at times convenient for the mining industry. He promoted heavy fines and mandated cleanups to end the practice. Citizens believed that phosphate pollution, quote, threatened the health of humans, cattle, and orange groves, end quote. Nathaniel Reed, Governor Claude Kirk's environmental advisor, called the phosphate industry, quote, the bad boys of pollution control, 
and challenged the industry to stop the god-awful cloud that occurs when acid and ammonia plants mix emissions. Finally, many Floridians believe that the phosphate industry's water demands had a negative impact on the state's aquifer and contributed to fish kills and water pollution. So what were the particulars of the deal and who opposed it? The foundation for the Occidental Soviet phosphate deal was laid during a meeting between Armand Hammer and then-Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev in 1961, when Khrushchev expressed the nation's need for phosphate fertilizers to increase agricultural production to meet the nation's food needs. Hammer began a process of land and industrial acquisition that placed him in a position to negotiate a sale of phosphate to the Soviets. As Massey explains, quote, he transformed Occidental from an oil and gas company into an oil, gas, and fertilizer company, end quote. President Richard Nixon's detente policy opened the last door for the deal. Opposition to the deal was swift and loud. It brought together environmentalists, public administrators, and a variety of Cold War warriors. Some compared the deal to the 1972 U.S.-Soviet grain deal that critics called the Great Grain Robbery. Others worried that there were no guarantees the Soviets would not use the phosphate for weapons production. A third group was already predisposed to opposition to any international deal since they already viewed the phosphate industry as a new OPEC-style cartel. Of course, environmental concerns already in play entered into the list of apprehensions about the deal. Finally, a fourth group complained that the 20-year deal was created through a $180 million taxpayer-backed loan. The complaints led to a congressional inquiry. When Armand Hammer appeared before the Congressional Investigating Committee to address the issues, he came prepared with a variety of arguments. He claimed the deal was, quote, essential to global peace and prosperity, end quote. Detente and the potential for future trade deals would open new markets to American production. He pointed out that 10 private banks, including Bank of America, and some 100 small firms were involved in the deal. Although the Import-Export Bank was lending the Soviets $180 million, the Soviets were fronting $40 million in cash, and, he claimed, despite views to the contrary, the Soviets were, quote, good for the money, end quote. Finally, he noted that Occidental was investing $340 million in Soviet plants and infrastructure in addition to the millions the company would invest in expanded facilities in Florida for mining, shipping infrastructures, and Jacksonville port facilities. Now, the 1970s witnessed economic problems that were influenced by global events. Did the phosphate deal figure into those negotiations and initiatives? The 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan brought the phosphate deal into the national and international conversation again. In February 1980, the Carter administration announced a boycott of the 1980 Moscow Olympics and blocked grain shipments and other Soviet-bound exports, including phosphate. Massey quoted a New York Times reporter who claimed, quote, the largest trade transaction ever negotiated between a U.S. corporation and foreign nation, the flagship of detente, was in jeopardy, end quote. 
Occidental's phosphate shipments represented less than 10% of Florida's phosphate production. But, Massey observed, the suspension troubled the entire industry, and some argued Cold War peace efforts. In 1981, acting on a campaign promise, Ronald Reagan lifted the ban. Occidental, the Florida Phosphate Council, and many American farmers and businesses applauded the boycott's end. But the lifting of the ban did not produce renewed prosperity for the industry. The high interest rates and reduced farm revenues forced farmers to cut costs, including fertilizer costs. In June 1981, phosphate shipments were down 20 percent, and the industry suffered a 15 to 20 percent decline in per share earnings for the 1981 fiscal year. Seven of Florida's 23 strip mines and five of its 18 processing plants closed. By 1983, 3,670 phosphate workers were without jobs. Polk County was hit the hardest. In addition, the Seaboard Coastline Railroad, the Tampa Electric Company, and the Port of Tampa reported layoffs due to the downturn in the phosphate mining and processing. Florida's brief foray into the politics of the Cold War global economy added new environmental concerns and lengthened local industry to the 1970s Cold War detente, economic protectionism, and neoliberal market ideals. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Every Christmas Eve, hundreds of people dressed as Santa Claus participate in the Surfing Santas event in Cocoa Beach with thousands more watching. Holly Baker has more. The annual Surfing Santas event in Cocoa Beach has become a holiday tradition for families along Florida's Space Coast. I recently talked with George Trossett, the founder of Surfing Santas. A native of Rockledge, Florida, he's been surfing since he was 12 years old. He told me more about the popular Surfing Santas event. We had our first Surfing Santa, and that's singular, in 2009. I'd seen this uh, advertisement on TV, and it was for Honda Motors, and Honda ran, they ran this ad, and they showed some people surfing some four- and five-foot beautiful waves in Santa suits. And I just said, I want to be a Surfing Santa. So my wife went to the thrift store and found me a raincoat that was red. We added some uh, fuzz on it to make it look like a Santa jacket. We made a beard out of this same blanket material. Called my son up, I said, George, I said, I need you to be at the beach house in the morning. This is on the 23rd. And I need you to be, have elf outfits, you and your wife, and we're going surfing. I'm gonna be Santa, you're gonna be elves. The newspaper's gonna come take a picture. He showed up at the beach house. The waves were about four foot Kind of rough, but nice waves. And we paddled out and went surfing as Santa and his elves. And, and the newspaper took a little picture that wound up in the front page of the Florida Today on Christmas Day, 2009. No big deal, just a little family day on the beach. Had a little fun, starting a new tradition. We had no idea what it was going to become. 
Since the first Surfing Santas event in 2009, the number of attendees has continued to grow. So the next year, I'd see friends at the mall or go surfing with somebody, and they say, hey, George, what's this Surfing Santa thing? I saw your picture in the paper. I says, I don't know. Come to the beach house on the 24th, and we'll figure it out. Well, 19 of my friends showed up the next year. Everyone had Santa outfits, and we had ladies and men, and we just went surfing as Santa, and it worked out pretty good. Had a fun time, a little party at the house, a little food, a little beverage. And we even had a fire on the beach because it was a cool day. Well, then the next year we had 84 Santas show up. I knew about half of them. The next year it's 158, then 225, and then pretty soon we had 600 Santas on the beach. And I like to say that surfing Santas has become what it needs to be. And today it's a super fun, family-friendly, positive. People are so positive on the beach. There's this energy on the beach when you're at the event. It's, it's just it's very cool. The Surfing Santas event takes place every December 24th and includes a costume contest. Anyone can take part in the costume contest by dressing in a holiday-themed outfit of their choice. Prizes are awarded to the winners of each division, babies, children, groups, men, and women. The event has grown to these unbelievable numbers. One year we had eight, over 800 people dressed as Santa, and I'm told when we're on the beach there's eight or 10,000 people come down to watch. Now, I mean, it's a full-blown production. It takes about 60 days to iron out all the details. We start in October. It just takes a while to figure out all the things that are involved. There's permits with the city. There's The city of Cocoa Beach provides police and EMT, lifeguards. The fire department's involved. They're just um, We've just had really good support from the city and others, which has allowed our event to grow and to be what it is today. Surfing Santas has raised almost $100,000 for charity through donations collected at the December 24th gathering and from sales of official Surfing Santas t-shirts. Proceeds go to the Florida Surf Museum in Cocoa Beach and Grind for Life, a local organization that provides financial assistance to cancer patients and their families. Surfing Santas has become such a popular event that it has a real chance of breaking a Guinness World Record. But George Trossett says it's not really about setting records. It's about bringing people together. It's possible we're the largest surfing-related event in the world. No other event gets eight, ten thousand 10,000 attendees and six, 800 surfers. But the size doesn't matter. What matters is we're making smiles. And when we hit the national media after our event, and it's on every television station you can think of, and everywhere you look, there's something pops up about surfing Santa's. We're making smiles, and that's what's important. A simple tradition that started with a surfer and his family catching waves together on Christmas Eve has turned into a globally recognized event that's attended by thousands of people and only continues to grow larger each year. George Trossett. I've been told by many people that surfing Santas is their new family tradition for Christmas Eve. And how cool is that, that our goofy little event has turned into something so that people look forward to? It's so much fun. And what's really cool about event day is you got eight or 10,000 happy people, they're smiling, they're taking selfies, they're taking pictures of people walking by. It's all good, positive talk. It's the most fun you can have over Christmas. The annual Surfing Santas event begins on December 24th at 8 a.m. along the beach near Three Minute Men Causeway in Cocoa Beach and continues until noon. 
For more information, go to surfingsantas.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Happy holidays. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.